everyone, it is Stephanie Postles, the host of Up Next in Commerce. Before we get into our latest interview with another e-commerce leader, I wanted to let you know that the Up Next in Commerce podcast is now available for sponsorship for the first time ever. By partnering with us, your company will be connected to interviews with the most compelling founders, CEOs, VPs, and digital leaders in the world of commerce today. You have nothing to gain but thousands of followers and millions of impressions each and every month. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to see how your business can benefit from partnering with our team at Up Next in Commerce. Welcome to Up Next in Commerce, the show that takes you to the front lines of what's happening in digital, retail, and beyond, with conversations from fast-growing startups to the Fortune 500 and everything in between. You'll get a glimpse into what's next. I'm your host, Stephanie Postles, the co-founder and CEO of mission.org, and I'll be your guide through all the trends, innovations, and hot topics in the world of commerce. As a technologist, Jenna Flaitman Posner did not initially envision herself as a retailer. Her varied tech experience stems from companies like Salesforce, Radius 8, Clutch, Level Up, among many others. Now, as the chief digital officer of Snipes, a highly successful sneaker and streetwear company, Jenna is leveraging technology to add value to the business and enhance the customer experience. As a tech expert turned retailer who has seen both sides of the retail tech partnership, she offers a unique perspective on retail technology. Jenna and I discuss this, plus her previous experience as a professional rugby athlete, and much, much more, plus a few laughs. Enjoy the episode. What are business leaders thinking about when they aren't winning a business? Family, travel, the latest TV show? Yes, yes, and maybe. But how about quirky business opportunities or little discussed financial trends or maybe even plant medicine benefits and alternative wellness? Mission Daily is back, baby, and our flagship podcast is better than ever. Mission Daily is the podcast for the business builder, the thoughtful marketer, the team manager, the blue-collar worker looking for new ways to think about life, finances, and health. This is for the people who want to break the status quo and laugh a little or a lot along the way. Join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we address the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about but don't often talk about. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. I wanted to start out with you playing rugby because I think that's super interesting. Yeah, sure. Um, So I'll kind of just give a little background on myself as an athlete in general, um, because I think as an athlete, there's a lot of qualities, teamwork, perseverance, patience, commitment that, you know, that come out of being uh, an elite athlete. And so my entire life, I've been an athlete. Um, When I went to college, uh, I went to Wesleyan University, Division three, um, chose my brain over my body. And that decision um, could have kind of leaned into D1, but really wanted to focus on my education. And Wesleyan was absolutely the right place for me. So in a D3 environment, I was able to play lots of sports, right? Lots of games. So I played field hockey and I ran track. And so I was a seven-time All-American track sprinter. 
and a national champion my junior year, which was which was pretty fun as like a little white girl running really, really, really awkwardly fast. Amazing. Wow. My senior year, I ended up going abroad to Australia, which is where I was first exposed to rugby. And I happened to be there in a World Cup year where I was watching this. I didn't realize what a gift I was being given to see this like high level, like the highest level play of rugby uh, only happens once every four years. It's like this big deal. And I kind of fell in love with the sport. So when I came back, I ran my indoor season and I started playing rugby in the spring. And one thing led to another. Um, a friend wanted a ride to a regional tryout. I decided to, I was like, well, if I'm going to take it, I may as well try out. So I tried out. And like, before I knew it, I'm, I'm on the under 23 national team. And I'm just like in the circuit and in this pool. And, you know, that lasted seven years, right? I built a community in, in New York. I played for the um, New York Women's Rugby Club for, for seven years. I met my wife playing rugby, playing against her, uh, which was pretty Oh, that's great. (laughs) Um, But I got to play at the most elite level and travel the world and play rugby. And I would say from a rugby perspective, the the biggest differentiator for me as an athlete in, in this rugby environment, you know, all of the other things that I played, not that it came easy to me, but I knew that if I got in the line against almost anyone, I would be competitive or win, right? I knew I had that confidence that this was an eight to me, right? I could train, I could get maybe, you know, a couple hundredths, hundredths faster, but as long as I was fit and in shape, I knew that I could, I could always sprint and I could always run and mostly win. You know, rugby was different for me. Rugby is a complex game. It's an intellectual game. It, there's a lot of dependencies across a multitude of different positions and body types and strategies. And it is, an unbelievably complex game. And for someone that didn't grow up with a rugby ball in their hand, you know, when you're playing against New Zealand and Australia and France and England, I mean, this is just like culturally a sport that they see on TV. I mean, it's just, it wasn't this way in the US. And so for me, I had my speed, which kind of got me on the radar, but it was hard for me. It was a marathon. It was a, a, a it was I couldn't work as hard as I possibly could and be the best in this environment. And it gave me a new level of understanding that, you know, there might not be things in my life that will always go smoothly or come easy. And even if I work as hard as I possibly can, I still might not be the best, right? So it, it's definitely, it was a very humbling experience for me. I was really lucky to be in the pool for so long and to, to get the opportunity to play internationally. But that struggle for me was really important it gave me the grit I needed in order to really enter the startup world. Um, because that's what startups are all about, right? You're like, you're, you're hungry. You're trying to convince the world that your agenda is so important. Um, and it requires a level of, of grit and fearlessness that, um, that I really learned how to fine tune through my rugby career. Mm, That's great. So after you had, you know, you're sitting in rugby and you're learning all these really good lessons around grit and it's, you know, probably influencing a lot of decisions in your life. What was next after that? Like, where were you called to? Yeah. You know, I think what's really interesting about being in that community at that level is you're kind of at that point, you're working to pay for your rugby career, right? So rugby back in the day, you know, back back in the day, I just turned 40. It's tragic. Like it's, it's rough right now. Trash. I'm feeling a little old these days, but um, oh, forty is the new twenty. Come on, Jenna. Back in my twenties, uh, when I was playing rugby, we were getting paid maybe 150 bucks a day when we were on tour. So when you're home and you need the nutritionists and you need the most recent trend of training and 
you know, access to the best gear and recovery and, and physical therapy. And I mean, all of it was just so involved in being able to maintain your body in an environment and grow your, I remember being at my desk, like throwing down chicken cutlets just to like keep weight on because you're training so hard, right? It's yeah. So you're really working to play, right? And so for me, when rugby was over, it allowed me to pick my head up and say, wait, do I have a career? Like, did I, what have I been doing? Like, is this, am I on a path, right? Um, And so ironically, towards the end of my career, an agency that I was working for bought a third of a startup. And they said, hey, do you want to run BD for for this startup? And I thought, okay, like, this sounds, this sounds cool. It was a startup that was like well before its time. It was an app that would serve you deals based on where you are. I mean, we're talking like... Great. We need that today. 2010, maybe, right? Wow. It's an app Uh that serves you deals based on where you are. And in order to redeem that deal, you walk in, you hit redeem, your phone becomes a scanner, and you scan a QR code at the point of sale. Okay. 2010. Yeah. 2010. That's great. To get the deal, you have to agree to post a pre-written post that says like, hey, I'm at Joe's Pub getting a two-for-one. You can two-click here, right? So you're advocating for the retailer... You're getting your deal, right? So I was like, this is cool. It's easy. No problem. So I did that for a while. Things kind of floundered. And I found this opportunity to go open up the first regional office for Level Up, which again, really early 2011, 2012, mobile payment. So I ended up moving down to Philadelphia. I got married in 2011. I moved away from my team. Like it, it was kind of time to hang them up, you know? And so for me, I got to really take a look at what had I been doing and what professional career am I on? And finding my way into this kind of startup scene was a really cool way for me to say, okay, I like tech. I like retail. These are all kind of risks. I'm a total risk taker. Let's see what this could be. It was like this beautiful amalgamation of like risk, you know, feeding into my ADHD, like allowing me to do a million different things, learn all these new things, pontificate, hypothesize, test, learn, fail. Like all those things were so important to me um, that Startups really allowed me to do that. So that's when I moved down to Philly and I started working for Level Up, which has since exited to Grubhub. It was super cool. Did you go to Grubhub when they exited or you weren't? I was gone before the exit. Okay. But watching that company grow and exit was pretty awesome. Obviously, I stayed very close with leadership there. So it it was a good time for everyone. So from there, I ended up being in Philly, running that office for Level Up for quite some time. And then I ended up migrating over to Curalate, which was a UGC aggregation tool which really started getting me more expressly into retail. And that's really where I realized like, okay, this is, this is fun. This is where I want to be. Awesome. Okay. So fast forward to today. Yeah. Where are you at today and what do you do there? Yeah. So today I am the chief digital officer at Snipes. We are a global sneaker and streetwear retailer. Um, so akin to a finish line or a footlocker. But better. Yeah, but better, obviously. (laughs) Um, I always feel the need to validate it that way because we've been established since 1998 in Europe and we are a top three sneaker and streetwear retailer in in Europe. We've only just come to the US by way of acquisition in 2019. So we're still really, really new to the market. So I came on May 2019. It's been wild. It's been so fast. We've acquired three businesses since I've been here. And how many retail locations do you have? I saw a number and I remember it being very large. Yeah, we're, we're uh, in the U.S. We're just around 300 now. Uh, so globally, we're over 600 locations. We're definitely a really unique business model from an e-commerce perspective and from a e-commerce technologist perspective. We have probably the most um, challenging digital environment to handle on a day-to-day basis. We handle hype selling, meaning we have low quantity, uh, high demand 
footwear that has a big aftermarket resale value. And so you've got all sorts of folks that come to try to get access to these shoes because either they love them and want them and want to wear them, love them, want them, want to hold them and collect them, or love them, want them and want to resell them and make a buck. Um, and so, you know, we could have a thousand pairs of shoes and 200,000 people that show up. So having a digital environment that can handle not only the frequency that we have to manage as far as consumers go, but the bots and technology that go along with that hype selling makes it really complex and really fun. What has been the most hyped up shoe that you've sold? I want to look it up and see like which one had the most people wanting to buy it or? You know, that's a really good question. You know, we have like Concords and we have like 11s that that move around the holiday where there's a ton of hype. Um, Yeezys historically have always been wild for us. Um, that's been waning a bit. But, you know, what's really funny about it is it's almost like the stock market. You never know which style is going to hit. So it's very unpredictable. You know, we have our, our guesses and our own intuition about what makes a hype product and what doesn't. And so we're usually pretty spot on. We know what's going to be important to our customer base, but there's always that one-off that surprises you. So it, it definitely keeps us guessing and puts us in a position to have to be able to handle anything at any time. Yeah. Okay. So give me the formula. What makes a hype product? What indicators do you all look at to know if something's going to do well or not? I mean, it's, it's silhouette, it's colorway, it's the storyline behind the shoe, right? Um, are we commemorating uh, the first championship for Michael Jordan? Well, there's probably going to be a lot of hype around that. Is it a collab with a celebrity? Is it a limited release? Who actually has the shoe, right? Are a select number of vendors holding the shoe or does everybody have it? So those are kind of some of the variables that, that matter. But it's also kind of loosely tied to the economy as well, right? Um, so, you know, disposable income is certainly a player here as well. So it's, it's a very interesting market. It's really fun to watch and be a part of and drive. There's a big part of this too, which is customer experience, right? If customers have a really horrible experience trying to get a release shoe, you know, are they going to come back and try again, right? And how hard is it to satisfy a customer when you have a thousand shoes and 200,000 people that show up? right? It's hard. Yeah. Yeah. What do you do? I mean, I'm trying to think like, what do you tell all the rest of the people? Like, yeah. I mean, it reminds me of like trying to get Burning Man tickets this year. Exactly. And it's like, how many are actually out there? I've been waiting for like a thousand hours now and it's a no and there's a reason. <laughs> I don't even know what number I was. Like, yeah. I'm just really sad. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's absolutely no different than that. We employ a number of things, everything from digital queuing environments where we can actually hold people off of our site as to not put any pressure on the infrastructure side of our site. So we'll have a digital queuing system that will route consumers from the PDP to this area where they can see what's dropping, what number they are in line. Um, we have like a progress bar that shows you how close you are to actually getting into the site to try to give some sort of visibility and timing. And then we have a whole host of technologies and rules that are set up in our environment that help protect the product, right? And help protect our consumers. Because what we don't want is for every reseller that gets access to our product, that's one LTV that I can't grow. Right. So I'm giving that LTV to a reseller site. Right. I'm giving that LTV to the, the end conversion that's going to get that shoe to the end consumer. So if my consumers can come here and know that I can preserve those pairs for them and get them to them, they're more likely to come back for the hat and the hoodie and the sweatpants. Right. So that's where the value is for us to make sure that we're getting our product, Nike's product, Jordan's product, et cetera, into the hands of the right consumers, the ones that drive more value back to our business. So it's really important, right? So we have bot mitigation tools, we have fraud tools. We, I mean, we've got a whole, I don't want to tell you too much because I don't want the community to know how we do it. People to get around it. But what I will say is that, you know, we've, we've got eyes on a lot and the feedback that we get 
from the community is that we're, we're tough to beat, which is nice. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. So I want to hear about your uh, time going from, you know, being this, you know, retail tech to moving to a retail executive. So you were, you know, you were mentioning content, UGC payments, like you were in that space, essentially developing technology for retailers and telling them what was best to the now you were at the retailer. Why did you choose to make that yeah. switch? And what does it look like yeah, from your perspective? Yeah, so I know we talked about this before, um, you know, sitting on the partner advisory board for Salesforce and actually um, facilitating a lot of integrations with Salesforce and having a rich history there, um, building a rich history within that organization as a tech executive was really important to me. And, and obviously for any startup, aligning yourself with a heavy hitter like Salesforce, you're trying to develop exit strategies is probably a good choice, right? So, you know, my roots were in deep in that organization. And so the story of how I actually found my way into retail, I think, is a kind of a hilarious one. Um, I was actually at a conference out in Vegas and I was I was doing one of those like lightning speed dating lesson things where you sit down, you have 15 minutes with a retailer. It was actually with our COO of Snipes. Right. So I, I sat down to pitch my now boss. Right. I'm pitching her on localization technology. Right. I was the chief growth officer at Radius 8, which is a localization tool that eventually exited to Fiserv. And I'm sitting there and I'm telling her this localization story and she's just eating it up. And I'm like, wow, she's so engaged right now. This is, this is amazing. So she gets, you know, to the end of the meeting and she says, hey, you know, I'm based in Philly. You're in Philly. When we get back, let's get together. We'll have some coffee. You know, let's, let's keep this conversation going. I thought, that's a great idea. Let's do that. So fast forward to coffee. I'm halfway through the coffee and I'm like, oh my God, I'm on an interview. I had no idea. What is this? That's better. You could be your more authentic you without even That's knowing. That's not a problem for me. I don't know if you've, you've gotten got that already. Well, I'm already enjoying this interview so much. It's great. <laughs> so she kind of makes me this loose offer, you know, and I say, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I'm a technologist. I'm not a retailer. I was like borderline offended. <laughs> like, how dare you think of me as a retailer, right? It was so funny. And she said something to me that I'm like... Stephanie, I carry this with me everywhere. She looked at me and she said, I mean, my, my feedback was, I'm not a retailer. I wouldn't even know where to begin. How would I do this? Like, this is absolutely not, right? No, this is my lane. So what she said to me was, Jenna, we have enough legacy retail thinking to last us a lifetime in this organization. And that is not what I'm looking for. We've got that. We don't need that. We need pace. We need innovation. We need grit. We need performance. We need to push boundaries. We need a driver. I really want you to consider it. And I'm willing to swing for the fences. So I was about to go on vacation. And she said, take your vacation. I was like, thanks. <laughs> Just take your vacation. <laughs> thanks. You're not my boss yet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to your wife and really give this some thought. And I did. And, and the more I thought about it, here's where I ended up. Obviously, I took the role. I ended up thinking, huh, okay, I can come in as a VP of digital in a, in a budding retail organization. You know, retail is like the military and you got to start from the bottom and you got to work your way up, right? That's, that's how this works, right? So many people in HQ here started in our stores, in our distribution center and found their way to climb the ranks, right? So I thought, wow, I get to, I get to skip the line and like really get in there at this level. That's, that's a huge gift, right? But one thing that I was also sold on in the process was the actual ability to go through a Salesforce implementation. So for someone who is, was, was so dedicated to that environment um, as a technologist and, and building that partnership and relationships within Salesforce, having the opportunity to go on the other side and actually complete a Salesforce implementation would really give me, I thought, the whole package. So for me, the thought was, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to be a spy, right? 
I like the mentality. I often refer to myself as like a wolf in sheep's clothing, right? I'm kind of over it now. I'm like, I'm a retailer now. It happened. It's been three years. Like I love it and yeah. I really enjoy it. You're it. <laughs> but for a long time, you know, I would find myself constantly like putting on my retail hat, putting on my vendor hat, putting on my retail hat and, and really trying to, and I still do this to try to learn from these experiences. And if you talk to any vendor that I have bought from, I hope what you would hear is that I approach those negotiations with a ton of empathy, compassion, and transparency, because I know what it's like to be in the other end and not get the data you need to do your job well, right? So that's something that I bring to this equation that I think is unique. And whether I stay on retail forever, or I come back to the other side, I think I think it will be really interesting to be able to take this kind of, you know, this duality that I have and, and bring it into, I mean, I'm bringing tech into Snipes, right? Like, will I have the opportunity to bring the concept of retail and buying and budgeting and prioritizing and creating cross-departmental alignment? Like, retail tech sales folks don't know what the hell that means. They don't know how hard that is. They don't know what budgeting really looks like or how flexible or inflexible it is. And I also only have one example of how that works. And that's how it works here, right? So even just being here doesn't give me the full picture because the way it works here might not be where it works everywhere else. So I'm kind of just on this ride. I'm on this journey and I'm learning a ton. It's really exciting. Man, making it through the pandemic was like, I feel like I've got my like badges of multiple badges of honor. And, you know, over the past three years, we've seen 10x digital revenue growth. So it's nuts. Hey there, are you enjoying the show so far? Well, imagine your company's advertising placed right in this very spot during a future interview with another elite e-commerce mind. Imagine your messaging and logo directly connected to the industry's most prominent innovators and thought leaders, distributed across every major podcast platform and social network. Yeah, well, it's time to stop imagining. Learn how you can partner with Upnext in Commerce and sponsor this very show. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org and let's have a conversation. What did your first 90 days look like? I mean, you mentioned that you were going to be, you know, implementing Salesforce. Was that decision already chosen or did you kind of come in and say, hey, this is what we should use? And yeah, what did the early couple months look like for you? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I I wish that uh, we had had this conversation a couple of weeks ago. I'm not exaggerating. It's been three years. I have a a whole whiteboard in my office. And the first thing that I did when I came into this organization after I like had a week or two of like, what is this retail? How does this work? I put the product enablement process on my on my wall. And it's probably the single most dependent, cross-departmental dependent process in the organization, right? It's it's photography, it's distribution, it's allocation, it's 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 copywriting, it's it's tech, it's it, I mean it, there's just every part of the business is involved in this thing, right? It's even stores. You know, 50% of our orders are filled by stores. So inventory accuracy is paramount. You know, and for me it was understanding how this thing works and then really understanding what are the key opportunities for efficiencies and pace that I can bring to the table. Because the faster we move, the faster we enable, the faster we sell, the faster we sell through product and term product, and the more we can buy the next time, right? So that for me, that 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 wheel in the center of our digital universe was something that I could measure I could evaluate and parts of it, I could really streamline and drive efficiency around. So that was kind of my first major project, understanding and and absorbing this kind of like daisy chained concept of retail and how these systems work and how they're interdependent. That was number one. Number two was obviously kicking off a Salesforce implementation. (laughs) Like 
what is that going to be? So my first step in that was hiring smart, right? Finding the right people, PMs, BAs uh, to come in and and work with me to define, document, and really architect what this was going to look like. I mean, in year one, I signed 28 contracts, got to call up all my friends and buy their technology. It was pretty awesome. That's great. Yeah. The benefit of, of being someone that just scoured conference room floors to absorb every bit of possible tech that I could get into my brain is that I had all of this very real-time context as to who was doing it well and who was doing it poorly, um, witnessing integrations and hearing retailers' feedback. I mean, I had directly, I had been surveying the industry for four years, um, you know, being at Clutch, which was my predecessor to Radius 8, which is where I built their partnership strategy. I got to come in and I got to cheat, right? I got to come in with all of this known knowledge and make some of these really heavy decisions. And so for me, it was, um, it was awesome. I mean, I got to move really fast and I got to flex my, you know, my, my technology really early. I think what was so amazing about coming in here, and this is testament to my boss, Bridget Cooperman, our, our COO, and it's not too different from how I have developed my own leadership style, is that you kind of, um, I, I feel this way wholeheartedly, you start with all of my trust, right? You don't have to earn it. You start with it, you have it, and it's, it's basically yours to lose. And so coming into this environment as a total newbie in the retail industry, having the full support and trust of my media boss, who was my advocate and enabler, <laughs> for better or for worse, you know, it just allowed me to just operate. It allowed me to go and move. And, um, you know, I haven't, knock on wood, I don't think I have any wood in here, I haven't broken her trust yet. So yeah, a lot of buying, getting deep into the implementation of Salesforce, all the while navigating ourselves as a new, potentially huge market that is a part of a, a global entity, right? So I would say those are the, the three things that I really, really leaned into. Well, four things, if you, you know, building a team. I started, we had about 10 people here on staff and we're over 40 now. I mean, that sounds like such a fun role to get into. Like you said, having that trust and being able to just be able to freely do what you wanted to. I mean, that's, that's the kind of things that I'm drawn towards as well. Like I remember back in the day when I was picking which uh, team I wanted to join at Google and I was in finance. And so four of the five teams I got offers from, they were like, you have this process, you do the PL, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, process, so boring. And then there was this other team, Maps. They were like, we've never had a finance lead. We might acquire the satellite. Mm, you can kind of work with the product team. We have this VR thing. And like, it was all over the place. And I was that's like, me. that's, you see me. Okay, that's me right there. <laughs> so I, I feel that within your role too, of just like, go try things, make this work. Um, yeah. And yeah, you have the full trust to do what you need to. Yeah. Which is awesome. And I think it's been really cool because, you know, I, I, I kind of tease sometimes and say, you know, I made some really big kid decisions in those early days. And right? I bought MuleSoft. Like, little baby websites, don't buy MuleSoft, right? That just yeah, like, doesn't yeah. happen, right? But I knew what we were doing and I knew we were headed and I knew the vision that we had for the business and the roadmap that was already proven in Europe. And I just knew that we had to do it. And so, you know, we've built this really beautiful, strong foundation from which we've been able to grow. And it's just, um, I will say that it's getting to the point now where, you know, it's it's less startup-y and we're kind of leaning now into needing a little bit more of that process and repeatability and predictability. Um, and we're, we're, we're finding our way through that now, which is good but for some, harder for others. Um, but, you know, we're kind of exiting that adolescent phase now and we're, we're getting much more established in how we operate, 
um, the technology that we leverage, how our data is governed, right? All of that is getting much more stable and clear. And so um, now we're in a place where we've got a really solid team and we want to be leveraging our technology to expedite our outputs, right? Like put all of that to work. And that's really where we're at now. Um, not doing a ton of buying. We have some major projects that are coming up that are super cool, but a lot of this year and the first half of Nexus really going to be honed in on exploiting the technology that we currently have in place. Yep. Yep. I love that. Okay. So put on your smaller company startup hat now. What retail tech investments do you think brands should be looking at that may not feel like they have immediate ROI, but they will have a long-term benefit that maybe people are missing right now? Mm. Because to me, that's what I hear that you've done coming in to Snipes and being like, I know we're not the company size to maybe buy MuleSoft. However, here's the plan. Like, What are maybe your favorite pieces of retail tech that you're like, brands should look into these because they will benefit if you you know implement them? Oh my God. So this is just not sexy, but are you ready? Mm-hmm. I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always ready for not sexy. That's okay. basically where I always <laughs> play at anyways. So, <laughs> um, so it's, um, it's fraud. It's fraud. Uh, I think from, from my perspective, especially in our industry, we are absolutely a target. But I think that the way that it was being handled, and this was actually the first contract I signed when I came in. So to your point, right? It was a low-hanging fruit. It was opportunity that I saw, and I'll explain kind of how it impacted the business. Um, we were using a company that was a fraud provider. Right? You want to have some solution that's detecting fraud. But the challenge of that at that point is that it was kind of rules-based. So it was rules-based in that they would score the risk of the consumer. If it was above a certain score, they would allow the transaction to pass through. If it, if it didn't, then it would kind of go on hold and it would need manual intervention. And so you're then saying like, I'm not confident enough to say this isn't a good consumer. So, you know, Snipes, you get involved and you guys make the decision. Like the whole point of having technology is to accept the fact that tech should be smarter than humans. Like why would my customer service representatives have a subjective opinion that would have any sort of indication as to whether or not this consumer was fraud. It's just not fair to put them in that decision. And so that's one angle, right? I'm spending customer service hours that should be actually supporting our customers trying to detect and determine fraud. Like that just is counterintuitive. Most people can't even detect phishing links, much less is this an accurate customer. (laughs) So on top of that, when you're dealing with this, like let's go back to the hyper-release side of things, when you have call it a thousand units with a hundred thousand consumers, when you're holding those transactions, you're reserving that inventory and you're disturbing and disrupting the release. So imagine you've got a thousand pairs or two or 4,000 pairs or whatever it might be. And a third of them are now on hold and need manual intervention and manual review. Well, now you're in a release, your site's on fire because a hundred thousand people have showed up and you're holding this inventory and you're looking through order by order, trying to decide, oh, do they deserve it? Are they fraudulent or not? And then when you decline it, you then have to put it back into inventory and your site goes on fire all over again, right? And so what should have been, you know, 30-minute release windows where people come in, they get their shoe, they get out, it's gone, right? We're like two, three, four hour windows of disruption. And so at that time when I came in, they were queuing the entire site, meaning that everyone that got to the site was put into a queue where now we're queuing the the actual product detail page, right? So people can still shop the site and we can still generate revenue outside the release. Smart, smart. I like it. So imagine queuing an entire site and losing 
two, three, four hours of, of transactions. It was really a huge problem. And so I brought Forder in, Salesforce partner, brought Forder Forder in. Forder, got it. And the benefit, the major benefit is number one, their decisioning is really, really spot on, but um, it's also real-time decisioning. So there's no on hold, there's no human intervention, there's none of that. And what's also very compelling about what they do is they anonymize all of our transaction history and they essentially pool fraud together. So when they work with Priceline or HelloFresh or Nordstrom or whomever, all of those decisions are being pooled into one one fraud pool. And so I get the benefit of them deciding that Jenna was fraudulent on Nordstrom. Jenna comes to Snipes. Jenna's probably still fraudulent. So now we have the collective power of this pool of retail data to allow Forder to be more informed and really daisy chain that fraud risk together. And so they use something like 6,000 data points to 6,000 data points to, to identify that it's you, like it's, is it your IP address? Is it your Wi-Fi? Whatever. It's been unbelievable for us. Our approval rate went up. Our chargeback rate went down. They also offer chargeback forgiveness. So if they make a bad choice, we get reimbursed. Like it's, it's, um, it's great. And so the next phase of our product relationship with them is I asked the question. It was a pretty simple one. I said, okay, if you can look at fraud history and determine someone's fraudulent and decline them, can I tell you what a bot looks like at the transaction? Whether it's number of attempts or time between attempts or whatever else it might be, right? Not giving away too much. But if we gave you those data points, and you saw them, could you decline those transactions too? And make sure that we're giving that one unit to that one customer. And um, we've had a ton of success with that, being kind of our, our last safety net at the pre-auth. And do they make that just for you? Or do other customers use that now well, as like now. a product? <laughs> yeah, now they're yeah. like, thanks, Jenna, we have a whole new product line. Yeah, and it's um, some of the best retailers in my space uh, now use that. So it's... Um, yeah, it, it, that was a huge win and a really awesome example of the partnership that I like to build with our tech providers, right? It gives, I, I have that tech, retail tech background, very possible that I could have the knowledge required in order to bring retail perspective into that product roadmap that can kind of help help bring us all together and, and just make better product and serve better use cases. So it's been successful. Oh, that's that's great. I love kind of going through the example, because to me, this makes it so practical for anyone listening of like how to go into a company and kind of audit what's going on and, you know, think about like what to offer. So with that, for all your first, what's your second favorite retail tech that you come in that you would maybe apply to most businesses that aren't all hype, you know, hype product hype related. Yeah. I know this is going to seem so old school and lame, but I'm going to go on like Great. a bit of a tangent right now. So all right. Interrupt me if this gets too boring. When I came in, we didn't have e-receipts in stores. I have read this about you guys, the e-receipts and first-party data. It's not boring. Go on. Okay. So there were no e-receipts. And my pitch to the business was, okay, first of all, 80% of our consumers are on mobile devices. Okay. Our, our consumers are mobile, at least on digital. And I can't make that claim in store because we don't have the conduit to connect that data right now. But if we put e-receipt in place, we could. So let's talk about that. So we piloted e-receipt. We saw an amazing adoption rate. Consumers obviously told us they would rather get an email in their inbox, you know, with relevant receipt data than have a piece of paper that they might lose. And for me personally, what it was doing for me was it was showing me the echelon of consumers that 
were willing to exhibit digital intent. So for me, it was, they're willing to give us an email. They want their information digitally. Is it fair to assume that they're more likely to engage with us digitally? Now, for me, at first, it was just a a data capture strategy, right? And for me, if they happen to use the same email in store as they do online, wow, what a great unique ID for me to be able to leverage in our CRM or in Service Cloud to tie those historically disparate transactions together and better measure our consumers. And so we did this and we measured it and we looked at consumers that supplied an e-receipt and had never transacted online, but did after receiving the e-receipt, which got us that beautiful opt-in, right, through the transaction, or customers that signed up for e-receipt and hadn't transacted in over 100 days, but did after receiving it. And the results were unbelievable. For me, it was um, a great way to create that conduit between the store and e-commerce, you know, at the, at the request of the consumer. But almost more importantly, it gave me access to that unique ID so I could better measure omnichannel consumers and the real value of what happens to them when they go from in-store to online. When we measured it, we saw an increased AOV, about 46% on web from store. But what was really cool is when we saw them go back into store. When they went back in the store after transacting online, they had an, a higher average order value as well. So, you know, all, all boats were lifted through this effort and um, it was a huge success. We stopped measuring it so intently, if that gives you any indication of how uh, confident yep. we are that it's adding incremental value to the business. Yeah. So. Oh, that's great. I love that. I love these stories, Jenna. Oh. These are <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Super interesting. I mean, when I think about your receipts, as long as I don't have to type in my email, that's the one thing I still feel like many stores need to be figured out. It's like, oh, my email's long. I can't find the at symbol. I'm also just lazy. And so sometimes when they, they'll be like, do you want me to email it to you? I'm like, yes, as long as I don't yes, have to but... type anything in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my perspective is mobile's next, right? Um, how do we allow the mobile number to be that ID? Um, and I think, you know, as we carve out our own vision for what a more traditional and published loyalty program looks like for Snipes, you know, mobile will be at the center of that. Because that's easy, right? That's you can yeah, you can that's fine. that in all day. Yeah, don't make me find the ad symbol, and I'll be happy. <laughs> and how often do you change your mobile number? Hmm, not that often. Yeah, never. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I've I've had mine since I was like 14. Oh my god, that's amazing! I know I'm the perfect customer. Like you'll always be able to find me wherever I go. I still have my Maryland number. <laughs> you have to be in our beta. <laughs> yeah, there you go. We like look at Stephanie. She's our our ideal person. <laughs> nice. So, what are you? working on right now that maybe is like a big bet and you're like, I don't know if it's really going to work out and have the ROI, but I'm super excited about it. Because I heard the foundational pieces that you're like, we're going to get everything we can out of the technology we implemented. But like, what new things are you thinking about? Yeah. So it's a new old thing. Through the pandemic, it became very clear that, you know, we just had a huge dependency on our own inventory. We learned a lot through that process, right? And we're kind of still, everyone's still hearing and singing the uh, supply chain woes, right? It's not quite over yet. We're not quite sure where it's going to end up between now and the end of the year. And through this process, I, I kept saying and thinking, you know, man, I wish we had dropship in place. Wouldn't it be great if we could have diversified our ask on our, on our supply? And so we've been thinking about it for a long time and we have, we've pulled the trigger and we're in the middle of an implementation. Um, one thing that we did that I think is pretty different slash innovative is, you know, we acquired Jimmy Jazz at the end of this year, this past year. Jimmy Jazz uh, was a 167 location retail chain that kind of shoehorns from Midwest down to Texas, all the way down to Florida Mm, and over to Texas. Look them up. What are they? Jimmy Jazz? Yeah. JimmyJazz.com. Check it out. Still exists. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. Yeah. So that's all us. That's our team. We manage both environments now. 
you know, in order to get to um, disparate websites to communicate, uh, they tend to have to share systems, right? So we could have gone through an order management migration, a merge migration, PIM migration, all those things to make sure that everything's got access to the same inventory. Or we could implement dropship and allow Jimmy Jazz to be our first supplier. That's what we're doing. And through the lens of acquisition and best practices, we think this is a pretty unique one. It is more costly than going through some of those more traditional migrations and deprecating the Jimmy Jazz site because, you know, you're, you're paying GMV on the Salesforce side, you're, you're, you're paying Shopify, you're paying your dropship vendor to be the conduit between both. But it gives us a tremendous amount of flexibility to determine what our product migration strategy is to migrate authority, equity, value, and our consumers from Jimmy over to Snipes, right? So it's giving us the time to determine what are we going to do with these properties? How are these systems going to communicate? And how are we going to continue to you know, not sacrifice the incredible value that lives on Jimmy Jazz while continuing to prioritize the Snipes brand? Because ultimately that's the goal. Snipes is the end game here. So that's been interesting for us. And I am so excited about that. It's going to give us some autonomy outside of our merchants, right? Where we can test some new, new brands, we can dropship vendors that we might not otherwise test in our 300 stores. We can have access to extended size runs to make sure that we're satisfying our customer demand, even if the margin might be less if it's supplied by a dropship vendor. So for me, I mean, this is just, it's all incremental value. Like if we can light this up, it could be, it's a total roll of the dice as far as I'm concerned. But I think that from a business case perspective on the acquisition side of things, I like it. I'm really bullish on seeing what the results will bring from a migration perspective. Mm. Well, that's super interesting. Wow. Okay. Where I wanted to go next was around some of the cool technologies, not just retail tech, but like technologies that you're interested in when it comes to the space. And where this question's coming from is one, I think about, of course, NFTs and digital ownership of like, you know, Yeezys or something like that, where people are like, I want to have transferable value. And on Twitter the other day, I saw someone, they had their phone out and they, there was a blank slate below them and they clicked on a shoe icon and then it had this like AR looking kind of like shoe pop up from inventory. And so they didn't actually have that in inventory, but you could look at it, you could turn it and then they like, you know, send it back into their phone. Worst way to describe it. Anyways, uh, <laughs> what are you looking at <laughs> when it comes to technologies in your space specifically? <laughs> yeah. Hologram. Um, that was a word I was missing. Hologram. It was a hologram. Oh, it was a hologram. Okay, that's cooler. Now you that's got it. Now you got cooler. it. Yeah. I'm kind of like, it looked like it came out of their phone, but yeah, I'm kind of questioning. I'm like, you can't really do that with your phones right now. So I'll, I'll send you the Twitter thread and you can tell please. me what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, that sounds fascinating. I love that. Yeah. I think from like a AR perspective, uh, a, little, a little overrated virtual try-on, like it's kind of uh, fun, a little gimmicky, but I, I don't think it really, in my opinion, it drives conversion. I think it drives engagement. I think that it'll keep you in an app a little bit longer so you can play and have fun. But I don't think that just because you've looked at it on your virtual foot that uh, you're going to feel more confident that it's the shoe for you. So that's just my perspective. From an NFT perspective, I own NFTs. I'm into it. I'm into crypto, you know. I think that it's beginning. I think it's happening. I think it's dying. I think it's beginning. I think it's in this odd life cycle of like, who am I? Where am I? Where am I going to end up? As a sneaker and streetwear retailer, working with Nike, Adi, Puma, Reebok, et cetera, of the world, watching the lawsuits that are out there as it relates to NFTs that represent my purchases or represent vendors that we don't wholly own, that's a little daunting. 
frankly. I'm not sure I want to go down that road yet. I'll let other people deal with that and see how it nets out. What I will say is that from an NFT perspective, as a tool to leverage it as a unique identifier, concepts of leveraging blockchain to hold currency, whether it's loyalty currency or promotional currency, I think that's brilliant. I want that. I want to go down that path. And we're ideating around, you know, we don't have e-gift. You know, I have a history with e-gift. I have a history with stored value in general. And I've watched many retailers struggle with fraud uh, from an e-gift perspective. And we have stored value in store, right? Merch cards, gift cards, things like that. But I have not lit it up online because I just know how vulnerable it is from my own experience. And so I see blockchain as a tool to de-risk that vulnerability. I think it's something that is, isn't going anywhere. I think blockchain is absolutely here to stay. I think it's uh, an awesome tool, awesome technology. And I want to see how stored value can actually sit on the blockchain to serve as a tool to, yeah, I mean, drive security um, without a doubt. So I, I see a near-term vision for that. Um, we're playing around with ideas of minting an NFT to serve as your loyalty card, right? I think that'd be neat to have your own, right? I think there's some philanthropic angles that NFTs also serve. We saw with Macy's and a few others, but it's all still very new. And I'm not fully convinced that it, it isn't going to live and die before I get, get the ability to deploy it. So we're, we're watching, we're ideating, we're getting ready. You know, technologists are going to productize these offerings. It's going to happen. So do we want to build it from scratch and be first, second, third, fourth, fifth? Or do we wait until technologists get involved and build something more secure, more repeatability, you know, more productized that we can license and buy into? So, I don't, you know, that's kind of where I'm at with it all. Yeah. You've also been in a company that was like too early. Good idea. Too early. So I'm sure you're probably like, mm, I've been here before. I'm just going to yeah. pause for a second. And... We want to really forge this new ground or not. Yeah. All right. Let's shift over to the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud, our amazing sponsor. This is where I ask a question and you have one minute or less to answer. Are you ready? I'm not ready. No, I'm ready. Not ready. Ready. Not ready. Right. Okay. What book it can be a commerce book, retail book, business book, would you recommend to appear and why? Oh man, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. It's like an oldie but goodie. It's so good. Every time I read it, it makes me reevaluate where I am in my own leadership journey, where my team is in their leadership journeys. Um, I loved it. A book that I actually want to read that I can't comment on, but I'm really excited to read. I mean, I have it in my hands. I just haven't sat down with it yet. My Life in Full by um, Indra Nooyi. She, I saw her speak at the Women in Leadership Conference down in Miami uh, this year, and she was unbelievable. And I'll give you one example of what made her so amazing. And you can just see her as a CEO and like how she would operate this way. Someone from the audience kind of stood up at the end and asked her, talk to us about remote work. How should this work? Should we be, should we be hybrid? Should we be 100% remote? Should we be back in the office? Like, what's your perspective? And I would say nine times out of 10, like there's no precedent for this. There's no right way to handle it. This is going to be more than a minute. Um, Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's no right way to handle this. Um, but she had a perspective and it wasn't wavering. It was logical and it was centered around hybrid work, giving companies the opportunity to learn from both environments, being home and being away and really having a commitment to in six months and a year, reevaluate it and determine, is this still this the right configuration for our business? And just the way she delivered it and how concise and how off the cuff, but confident she was in her delivery. I was like, oh man, if I can read this book and get like one ounce of decisiveness out of it, I'm, I'm in, I'm good. So I, I'm really looking forward to that one. She's an, she's an exceptional woman. Yeah. Okay. Also, 
like over 3000 ratings on Amazon, oh, almost yeah? five stars. Like, yeah. So oh, I'm going to no. buy this book as well. Great. Yeah. I might put that in front of the other book. I'm currently, I have like one sitting there too, where I'm like, I'm about to read it. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I might have to slot hers up. I don't know. Yeah. yeah I'm excited good. for that one. I think it's going to be good. What do you like most about living in Philly? Okay. The food's fantastic. It's got a really budding food scene. Imagine New York, right? Being an actual like startup restaurateur, um, it's a lot harder in New York, like rent's a lot higher. A lot of up and comers down here, which is pretty cool. The history is really rich, obviously. Philly's got a great history. City infrastructure is really good. Approachable art scene. I mean, it's, it's look, I lived in New York. Sorry, the city infrastructure part is just, I mean, I get it. It was like so logical. I love that answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, I mean, I lived in New York for a decade before moving down yeah. here. And my wife dragged me kicking and screaming the entire way. Yeah. So the fact that I'm like, Losing some Philly love right now is actually shocking. She'll be happy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But I will say that the biggest difference is, and this is a pro and a con, right? Like when you're when you're you're in New York and you're riding that wave, right? That 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 hustle, that energy, that just that that vibe that is New York, right? That pace. When you come down to Philly, you have to create it, right? You can't ride it. There's not there's no there's no wave to ride. But in creating it it's relatively easy to stand out. It allows you to really elevate yourself and be available and be present in Philadelphia and really connect. So I think for me, it's been a nice way of taking that pace out of New York and bringing it into a new environment and and inspiring others to to operate in that way. Hmm, That's cool. I love that. All right. What do you not understand today, but wish you did? German. Um, Okay. So we're owned by a German company. Collaboration across the pond is certainly something that can hurt and help and hinder and advance. And um, I, I think that knowing German would be advantageous for me. Yeah, I think so. I'm off I the think, cuff here, I mean, so you're getting you're getting me on. I like this. No, I'm like <laughs> I need to learn German too. I'm German. My grandparents are German. I don't know German. This is a sad state of affairs. We need to figure this out. I know. Let's do it. We could do it together. Well, Jenna. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. This has been a super fun interview. We already talked about having you back for round two in the future and, you know, holding you to everything that you're talking about. So until then, where can our listeners find out more about you and what you're up to at Snipes? I mean, our website, right? SnipesUSA.com, obviously. But yeah, I mean, LinkedIn, I'm around. All right, we will find you. (laughs) Please do. Thanks, Jenna. listeners. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.